Well, good morning. There's no manuscript today that you might be used to, but there are sermon notes. And so if you've got a copy of that, grab a pen and, and fill this out as we work our way through the sermon today. The kids are doing a bingo game that has some of the words that we've been using in the service today. Or kids, you can fill this out as well as we go along. This is now the second to last sermon in our summer series entitled God Is. What we've been doing is trying to get to know God better this summer by looking at various of his attributes. And today our theme is God is just and God is good. My guess is that you know God's goodness perhaps better than you know his justice. His goodness means that he is favorably disposed towards us, that he's inclined to have mercy on us, to do good to us. That's what he wants inside of himself. But I wonder this morning how you would define the justice of God. And so to help engage your minds this morning, I'm going to give you a little time to just share your thoughts with your neighbor. So if you have kids with you, have them tell you what they think God's justice is, or you could explain it to them, or just talk to the person next to you just for 30 seconds and define in words how you would explain the justice of God. Great, you guys did much better than first hour, so I'm glad to see you're awake. <laughs> the scripture says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. But what does it say about his justice? It's interesting that the Hebrew word sedek and the Greek word dikaion are both translated kind of interchangeably in the Old and New Testaments as either justice or righteousness. Those two words essentially mean the same thing. So if you're filling out notes, you can just say that justice means righteousness. It means that you do what is right and what is correct, what is proper, what is fitting, what is in line with the law. And in a legal sense, justice means to condemn the guilty and to preserve or protect the innocent. Is that the same as fairness? A famous line that all parents use sooner or later is, life is not what? Life is not fair, and that's true, life isn't. But I want to tell you this morning that God is fair. If by fair you mean that he treats all people according to the same standard. If by fair you mean that God gives everybody the same things exactly, then he's not fair, and you're not fair in your family. I mean, it's hard enough to give three children exactly the same thing every single day. You've experienced that. Can, can you imagine God having to give 7.6 billion people exactly the same thing? That's not what we mean by fairness. But God will never treat you unfairly. That's what his justice means. Every sin will be punished. That's what God's justice means. And yet, when we look at the world around us, this is not what we see. Have you ever been troubled by the fact that the evil and the wicked people often get away with what they do and God seems to sit there in heaven and do nothing? They break his laws, they dishonor his name, they abuse and hurt other human beings, and God seems to stay silent in heaven, and you wonder, is God just or not? Maybe it's more personal for you, and maybe you've experienced a hurt that has affected your life severely, and, and that's deep inside of you. 
We think of the Coleman family in Indianapolis today who were suffering after that tragic incident in Branson, Missouri. And we grieve with them. But specifically what I'm here talking about right here is somebody who's done an evil or an injustice to you and hasn't gotten what they deserve. And what do you begin to do? You begin to question maybe what's in this book. In fact, if you think deeply and hard enough about it, you might even be ready perhaps to abandon your faith because what you see in the world out there doesn't line up with what this book teaches about God being just and fair. And if you're asking those questions, you're in good company. They've been asked for millennia. Anselm, for instance, was the Bishop of Canterbury in the 11th century. And he said this to God, How dost thou spare the wicked if thou art all just and supremely just? It's a good question. He was just echoing what Asaph, the psalmist, said 2,000 years before that in Psalm 73, where he said, My feet almost slipped when I considered the prosperity of the wicked. He says, what I see is the wicked prospering and the good people not prospering and suffering at their hands. And I didn't know what to do with that. And he said, my feet almost slipped. These are deep questions. We're not going to answer them all in 35 minutes today. But I want to look at four truths about justice that may help us along that road. Three we're going to look at quite briefly and then the fourth we're going to look at more in depth through our study of our passage this morning, Romans chapter 3. And our goal is that by the end of this sermon, we'd be able to say with the psalmist who said in Psalm 7, 17, I will give thanks to the Lord because of his justice and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. You ready? Four truths about justice. First, our hearts desire it. Why did the movie The Avengers Infinity War make more than $2 billion already at the box office? I mean, that was a movie with perhaps the worst villain ever in movie Lord Thanos. Or maybe you saw this movie, uh, Justice League. Last year it made $650 million, where all the superheroes of the world gathered together and tried to wipe out evil. Why do we like these kind of movies? Now, I frankly actually didn't even see this one because I have my own superhero, and he did save the world alone. Isn't that amazing? But we love our superheroes and we hate our villains. There's something deep within our bones that desire that those who are evil get what's coming to them. And have you ever thought about why that is? Well, every system in our world has certain laws and principles and rules. And it must function by those rules or it falls apart. Look at your own family. You have some rules. Look at your job. There's laws there. Look at your school or the sport that you play. We couldn't even play sports without some rules. And you see, we get this intuitively, and our kids pick this up instinctively. Isn't it amazing how just our kids can be sometimes? For instance, if there's a family rule that says no cookies before dinner, and little Jimmy goes and sees his mom's not looking, so he grabs a cookie and eats it before dinner, and little Susie sees little Jimmy, what does little Susie want? She's going to go tell mom... And then she's going to expect, she's going to be rubbing her hands like this, that that little brat's finally getting what he deserves. <laughs> now let's say mom ignores it. What happens to little Susie? Well, her world begins to fall apart. The principles have been broken. It doesn't make sense anymore. And maybe tomorrow, little Susie 
is going to grab a cookie before dinner. You see, we have this innate sense of oughtness within us, and it's universal. There are some things that simply should not be done, and if they are, they should be punished. Now, we disagree about the specifics of that, but there is a deep sense within all of us all around the world that certain things should not be done and they should be punished, and if not, what happens? We understand that the world would descend quickly into anarchy. It would be dystopia. Every person for himself, our very lives would be threatened. We need a system that hangs together. And this world has an ethical, moral fabric that holds it together. And you might say, well, that doesn't prove anything. Just wanting a just world doesn't mean that God is just. And you know what? You're right. Wishing doesn't make it so. But I want to ask you, where did that sense come from that's within every human being? I think it came from our Maker. You see, we've all been made in the image of God. And so when we have that desire for the wicked to be punished and for rules to be upheld, we're just reflecting a little bit of the, the justice of the one who created us and made us in his own image. Our hearts desire it. Secondly, the word declares it. You might say, you haven't really said anything yet. You're just being philosophical. Why don't you give me some meat? See what God says about it. Well, we've already read Psalm 11. All you need to do is type justice into your search function on your Bible, and you'll just get a whole string of references, and, and I'd encourage you to do that later today or later this week. But I wanted to read three of them to you that just reinforce what we've already seen in Psalm 11. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just, is he. There is no question about this. The Bible declares that God is just and upright in all that he does. He will never pervert injustice. He will never pervert justice because he hates injustice. Every single sin will be paid for. And I wonder, is that what you really want? We'll get back to that. But as we look at that scenario, then we come back to the question we started with. Why have so many sins seemingly gone unpunished? To explain that, I want to give you God's exhibit A, the cross of Jesus Christ. And the third reality about the justice of God is that the cross demonstrates it. And if you haven't yet, take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking in depth at verses 21 to 26. But we need first to understand the context of what Paul says. See, the problem with justice lies not with God, but with us. God set up a perfect world in the beginning, and his laws were good. If we had simply kept his laws, we would not be having this conversation today. We're the ones that broke his laws and messed everything up. In fact, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. He's quoting from Psalm 14. He says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I had a friend just recently tell me, you know, I try to be a good person, and actually it's really not that hard. 
And you know what I thought? That, that's right from a human perspective. To be a, a decent person and to treat people well is not that hard. But God doesn't require decency of us. He requires holiness. And if you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah 6, we learned that God does not grade on the curve. You don't just have to be better than the next guy to get in. You have to be as good as God. And God's standard is 100% perfection. And according to verse 23, we've all fallen short of that standard. You see, you and I are the wicked, is what Paul is saying. We are Thanos. If you were to put all the righteous people in the world in one place and all the wicked in another place, we would all be over here. There is not a single one of us who is righteous. And the story could end right there. God would be completely just and right if he condemned every one of us to death because we're sinners. The harlot, the liar, the murderer, said Bishop Mole, are short of God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. You see, we're all equally guilty before God's holy standard, and we all deserve death at his hand. That's the song we just sung. We said, wash me, Savior, or... I die. That's what that verse meant. And so we come to our text. The first two words are but now. Martin Lloyd-Jones said there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words. Why is there even a but here? The reason is that God is a good God. God wants to give us life, not death. He wants to bless us and not punish us. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet, a, a tension was created for God when we sinned. Because in order to be just, He had to uphold the law. And so He decided to make a way out. He reaches down in His goodness and He creates a way out for us. And that's what we need to look at in depth now this morning. What is the way out of our dilemma? The way out is that he has made his righteousness available to sinners through the cross. That's our theme for today. God has made his righteousness available to sinners through the cross. And we'll see in this text four truths about the righteousness of God. First, it is from God, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It is his righteousness. It is not ours. We have none. We just saw that. So if we're going to be righteous in the eyes of the law, we need an alien, a, a different, a separate righteousness to be given to us. And God has that. He has his righteousness that he's willing to give to us. And it says it is apart from the law. Luther said that the law here refers to good works, and that's exactly what Paul meant. It is not because of things we do that we will be, be declared righteous. It is because of what God has done. The law functions only to give us a knowledge that we're sinners because none of us can keep the law. There is a righteousness apart from the law, which is a good thing because none of us have righteousness by the law. And then it says at the end of verse 21, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, even though we couldn't be made righteous through keeping the law, the law bears witness to this righteousness that comes from God. And how did it do that? 
Well, way back on Mount Moriah, when God provided a ram to die in the place of Isaac, he was giving a picture of his righteousness being made available to us. All of the sacrificial system, in order to approach God, you had to come with blood. And all of those animals that died were a symbol of the righteousness of God. And then as we move through the Old Testament, we get clearer and clearer predictions of the Messiah who is going to come and bear the sins of the world. And listen to this verse from Isaiah 53. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous. That's in the Old Testament. See, the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness from God. Secondly, this righteousness is through faith. Verses 23 and 24. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, this righteousness is not handed out to everyone without distinction. It's not just indiscriminately given to people. It's given to those who personally for themselves believe in Jesus Christ and in what he has done and receive him as their savior. When you do that, you receive a gift by faith and then you receive the righteousness of God. And the beauty of it is that it is for all without distinction, the scripture says. Just like all have sinned, this righteousness from God is available for all. It's available to Jew and Greek, rich and poor, black, white, and brown. It's available for Americans and Nigerians and Indians and Cambodians. This righteousness from God is available by faith to all, which is a beautiful thing in our just God's system. Thirdly, it is by grace, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Grace means unmerited favor. It is what God has done for us, not what we have done for him. Grace means that saving initiative from the beginning to the end belongs to God and God alone. John MacArthur said there are really only two religions in the world. The religions of human achievement and the religions of divine accomplishment. And he's right. All the other religions of the world are religions of human achievement. They say we must do something in order to be considered acceptable in God's sight. And you know what the problem with that is? You never know if you've done enough. I've talked to many Muslims who are trying to earn their way into heaven. I say, do you know you're going to go to heaven? And they say, how could I ever know? I never know if I've done enough. That is the religion of human achievement. Ours is a religion of grace. Ours is a religion where Jesus has done everything that we need for us. He has given it to us as a gift, and he said it is finished. And now we can rest in the finished work of Christ because of the grace of Jesus. Calvin said men's consciences will never be at peace until they rest on the mercy of God alone. That, my friends, is what grace is. Fourthly, it is a righteousness because of the cross. Verses 24b to 26. And we need to stop and dive into this in some more depth. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here at the cross, we see the justice of God in all of its glorious fullness. And yet right here is where the world sees foolishness. It is the folly of the cross 
to those who are perishing. Why? Well, they say something like this. Why the demand for blood? Why do we need a sacrifice? That's a very primitive conception. We're modern people. We don't want to talk about blood all the time. And then they might even ask a deeper question. They say, what was the necessity for the cross in the first place? Why couldn't God just forgive you? I've had Muslims pose this question to me, and they tell me that their God is better than our God. And I say, can you explain that? And they say, sure. Your God demands a payment for sin. My God can just forgive. And then they give me this example. Suppose you come up to me. Aaron, let's say you come up and you give me a, a right hook right on the jaw and you knock me out and I break my jaw and I have a concussion. And when I finally wake up, I have one of two choices. What are those? I can press charges against Aaron and he will have to pay for what he did. Or what else could I do? Okay, I think I see the light bulb coming on. This is a problem. I could just forgive Aaron, and it would be done. And that's what Muslims say about their God. He is so great and magnanimous that if he wants to, he can just flat out forgive you. He doesn't require a payment to be made like some petty human being. What is the answer to that question? I'd love to give you some time to talk about that because I've worked at that one for a long time. It's an important question. Tim Keller says he gets it asked all the time in New York City. I think the answer we've already touched on is that God set up a system from the very beginning. And when he created Adam and Eve, he gave them some rules and he told them what would happen if they broke those rules. What did he tell them? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely spend a year in jail. He said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The moral fabric of the universe that our just God has created has issued a law that if you violate the law of this holy God, you will be punished with death. And Paul confirms that later on in Romans chapter 6, verse 22. The wages of sin is death. Every sinner must die. And if God were just to wave that away, he would not be just at all, and his laws would mean nothing. This is why there must be the cross. Once man had sinned, there had to be blood. Now, people have wondered, like this wag described, this law is pretty hard and severe. Are there no loopholes here that we can get out of? And the answer is that in God's justice, there are no loopholes. If you break the law, you die. And yet, as we've said, God didn't want to kill us all and throw us into hell forever. Because of his goodness, he wants to give us life. And so this created a, a tension, we might say, in human terms, a dilemma for God. How could he be just and good at the same time? Lucius Brutus was the founder of the Roman Republic after he overthrew the Roman monarchy in 509 B.C. And as one of the first consuls of Rome, he made the people of Rome swear an oath that they would never again have a king to reign over them. Well, it wasn't long before the royal family got tired of their position and they began to try to get the throne back. And one historian says this interesting sentence about the royal family. He said, they resented the impersonal and inexorable rule of law. 
You see, if you think you're outside the law, then when the law is put on you, it doesn't feel very good. And when the plot was uncovered, it was discovered that two of the conspirators were Brutus' own sons, Titus and Tiberius. Now, the penalty for treason was severe. The guilty were to be stripped, flogged, and beheaded. And all of Rome watched to see what Brutus would do. Well, through tears, he not only issued an order that his sons be executed, this is a statue of Brutus, but he stayed and watched their execution to make sure that it happened. In 1789, Jacques-Louis David painted this painting of that event, and it's hanging now in the Louvre. And this painting became an inspiration for the French Revolution as they fought to get justice done for the common man. You can see the pathos there and the dead body of Titus being carried out. How noble of Brutus, but how sad. God had a different plan than Brutus. He had the wisdom of the cross. A plan at once more noble and more sad. And this is how I've put it together just to help me understand it. You see, God's justice is the foundation of everything that he does. His goodness, he desires to reign on us from heaven. And that was fine as long as we were obeying him. But when we sinned, that created a tension, a problem for God. And so God stepped in and he came with us up with a solution. He didn't find a loophole, but what did he do? He built a bridge of grace on the pillars of justice that allowed his goodness to flow down to mankind. And what was that bridge of grace? It was the cross of Jesus Christ. God's answer was to pay the price himself in the person of his son. Brutus presided over his son's education for, execution for their own sins. He was a just man. God presided over the execution of his son for our sins. He is a just and a good God. Well, how does that work out? There are three word pictures in this text that we need to look at just briefly, although we could spend a lot more time on them. First, redemption, verse 24. Redemption means to release on payment of a ransom. The Agora was the marketplace back in first century Middle East where you could go and buy and sell things. And in that marketplace, there were prisoners of war and there were criminals who could be purchased by the payment of money and then they were set free. And what Paul is saying is, this is what Jesus Christ has done. We were all in the agora, the marketplace, bound in the slavery of our sins. And Jesus has entered that marketplace, and he has paid the price for our remission, for our freedom, the price of his blood. The second word is propitiation, which means to appease the anger of God. You see, God didn't take it lightly when we disobeyed his holy laws. A righteous anger burned within him against us who were the sinners. And when Jesus died and through the cross offered his blood to the Father, that propitiated God. It, it made God realize that it was now paid for and he could accept us again in Jesus. And then the third picture is that of justification. This is a term from the law courts. It's a legal declaration that there's now no longer any charge against this individual. They are literally made righteous, the same word that's used for God in this passage. This is what God does through Christ and through the cross. He makes his righteousness available to us who believe by faith in his grace. You might ask, is it just to acquit the guilty? 
The acquittal of the guilty is the condemnation of the judge in our court system. John Stott said, without the cross, the justification of the unjust would be unjustified and immoral. And yet that's the whole point. There is the cross. The reason for the cross is to demonstrate the justice of God and to show that because God is just, every sin will be punished. That is why he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This allows God to show his goodness in saving us and yet to hold to his justice at the same time. His justice and his goodness meet in the genius of the cross. But you might ask, was not the cross itself an injustice? Again, this is what Muslims say. How could God do something so terrible to a holy prophet? And the reason it was not an injustice to Jesus is that he willingly took it on himself. He gave up his life of his own accord, he says. And that, my friends, is why we love Jesus at College Park Church. He came down, he didn't have to, but because of his goodness and his desire to maintain the justice of God, he suffered and bled and died so that we might be set free and have the righteousness of God. There's one more objection that could be made in this passage, and you probably saw the words Verse 25, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What does that mean? Does God sometimes sweep sins under the carpet? That's what it sounds like. No, what he's saying there is that all the sins, I think, before the time of Jesus Christ, every sin that was covered with a worshiper who offered by faith the sacrifices that were prescribed were cast forward onto the tab of Jesus Christ. They were put against his credit and the Father accepted them because he knew that Jesus' credit was good and that the day would come when he would pay for all of those sins. That's what passed over means. There was a great day of accounting on the cross 2,000 years ago when all of those sins were paid for by Jesus Christ. But you might say, how about today? Well, today we look back to that great day of accounting and, and the scripture says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we'll just confess them. We in this day and age throw our sins back on the cross and there is enough credit in Jesus' account to pay for all of those. So we remain, we can stay forgiven sons and daughters of God. But I need to tell you that because God is just, there is a second great day of accounting coming. Remember I said that the justice of God means no sin will go unpunished? Revelation 20 tells us about that day when every single person who ever lived will be gathered in front of that great white throne. One at a time, we're going to come before God, and it says books will be opened. Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot are going to be in that line, but so are you. And it's going to have a list of all the bad things you've ever done. That's what the books say. And when God looks at that list and says, you are a sinner, he will be obliged because of his justice to throw you into the lake of fire as your eternal punishment. But... There's another book on that second great day of accounting. It's called the book of the Lamb, the Lamb's book of life. And in that book are written the names of everybody who has, by faith, believed in the grace of God through Jesus on the cross and had his righteousness transferred to them. 
So when it comes through to my name, Nate Irwin, yes, you did this many evil things. But then the book of life will be opened, Nate Irwin. All of those things were covered by the cross of Jesus Christ. I see you only in the righteousness of God. You are now free to enter into paradise with me forever. And I wonder how it is with your soul this morning. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus that will deliver you on that day of judgment? That, my friends, is the goodness of God. Well, there's a fourth point that we're just going to touch on very briefly, and that is that the church displays the justice of God. How is the world going to find out about this just and good God? Only through his hands and his feet, his body, and that's you and me. You see, God is the just justifier, but we are not just justified. Paul goes on in Romans to say that those whom he justified, he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God changes us so that we become little Jesuses, and we have his justice and his mercy and his goodness in our hearts. And so he sends us into the world to care for the poor and the needy, to care for the widow and the orphan to clothe those who are naked and to visit those who are sick and in prison. That's how the world is going to see this amazing God who is just and good. That's why as a church we're involved in Brookside. We're helping our city in the areas of education and employment and housing to be a more fair place where people can see that God is a just and good God. That's why we're involved in hospitals in Togo and clinics in Nepal and with the poor in Cambodia because we want the world to see this God who in his goodness has yet maintained his justice. He cares for us and has provided everything that we need, including salvation through his son. Could you live with an unjust God? If God were unjust and he were God, you would have to. But could you worship and adore such a God? No, you would bend your knee out of force, but in your heart you would be cursing him. Agamemnon was the leader of the Greeks and he led his ships to Troy to battle the Trojans. And he found that the winds were against him and his ships couldn't make any progress. So he learned from a seer that he had offended the goddess Artemis and he needed to sacrifice his eldest daughter Iphigenia before she would release the winds. Of course, he refused at first, but eventually his commanders convinced him that this was the only way that they were going to be able to win the battle. And so as the legend goes, he sacrificed Iphigenia, and after she died, the winds changed direction, his ships were able to sail, and he won the battle of Troy. Friends, the God of the Bible is a God who has been deeply offended by our wanton disregard of his holy law. But the beauty of our God is that even though his justice demands blood, his goodness doesn't demand ours, but it receives the blood of his son, Jesus. Our God is just and good, and we see that in his cross. Shall we pray? Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay. Fully absolved through these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame.
God, we worship you for your justice and we adore you for your goodness. We thank you that these met at the cross. And Jesus, we just as a church want to give you our thanks for laying down your life for us, for bearing the wrath of God against our sins. You are our Savior and we love you. Help us to go out now and be people that proclaim it and display that goodness and justice to the world that we live in. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.